And now, deep from an underground fortress from an undisclosed location, from Long Island, New York, Miano Gone Wild. Still crazy, but crazy in, in a positive way. Miano Gone Wild. A program like no other. We can tell him the truth and it hurts. Zeal empowered by knowledge. Miano Gone Wild. Miano Gone Wild with your host Michael Miano, defender of truth. Same thing we do every night. Try to take over the world. Destroying the strongholds of bondage and setting the captives free. From the Power and Preterism Network, here, here is Michael Miano. Well, grace and blessings to you. Thank you for taking some time out of your day to tune in to MGW Apologetics, Miano Gone Wild online radio. Um, I'm your host, Michael Miano. I have to appreciate Larry Siegel's gracious introduction. Prayerfully, you had some time this week to go ahead and visit Fulfilled Dynamics Facebook page and see the conversation that has begun there on that Facebook page in regards to the work of the Holy Spirit and what we should be looking for as kingdom preterists. I love that phrase. Um, and what we should be looking at for as kingdom preterists to see the increase of the kingdom of God. I know uh, I was very excited to see that post. I was excited to see the conversation that had uh, begun around it. And actually, I did a podcast focused in on that post for the Life Podcasts that I have now begun doing on Tuesday, Thursdays, and Saturdays at 7 a.m. Eastern. You can go ahead and listen to those podcasts by visiting Blog Talk Radio. Dot com backslash MGW radio. So I'm excited for today's show. Um, I have Mike Bull. It's been hard to catch up with him. If you remember, you probably had tuned in about two weeks ago, and I was trying to get him on the show, and we seemed to be missing each other, and there was just a sort of technical issue. So what we had done was exchanged emails and worked out a idea for him to submit responses to the questions that I had marked out, and I said I would share that audio with you. So we're going to go ahead and move into that. He's actually going to pray for us as we move into our study, and I do want to encourage you. It's a long podcast. It's about an hour and 30 minutes of him speaking, so mark out some time, and uh, if you cannot mark out a, a full you know, two hours of time devoted to study and, and thinking and listening, then maybe I might encourage you to... Um, then maybe I could encourage you to um, set aside maybe two days devoted to listening to this podcast. Because Mike Bull, as I've mentioned many other times, he's very intelligent. He dives deep into study. It's, it's, you can tell from his, the way that he speaks about the scriptures and the love and the zeal that he has for God. So I admire that. It's been very encouraging to my study. It's edified me in many ways. And I know I appreciated his book, despite disagreeing in some areas that you're going to see marked out on today's podcast. Um, I have to say his book, uh, Moses and the Revelation, was definitely encouraging and it was good to see somebody tying together the law and the details of the Revelation and how all of that is uh, detailed throughout the New Testament and what is taking place in the New Testament at the end of that old covenant economy. So I'm going to go ahead and bring him on the show 
And uh, I encourage you to tune in, take some notes, grab your Bible, um, and follow along in this imaginative, intelligent, and well-presented podcast. G'day, my name is Michael Bull. I live uh, in the Blue Mountains, which is west of Sydney in Australia. Uh, It's a very big national park, often called the Lungs of Sydney, and uh, it's a beautiful place. So, uh, you know, if you want to visit sometime, call in. Anyhow, I'm responding to uh, Michael's questions the other day in the interview that never was. Um, We had a technical problem and I could hear him, but uh, nobody could hear me. So uh, I'm just working through the list of uh, questions that he's put together, um, which is quite an effort. Um, So I really appreciate that. And they're really, really good questions. Uh, The only downside of just doing an audio is uh, some of these things would be better understood with diagrams because they're sort of architectural, I guess. Uh, So we'll just have to um, use our imaginations and I'll try and take things fairly slowly. And of course, if you have any questions, uh, feel free to to contact me or or Michael. So um, first I'm going to pray and uh, that's always the way to go. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that it's you don't always spoon feed us. Thank you that you do give us things to to chew on and think about and to work out uh, so that we might gain wisdom and a greater understanding of you and your ways and your will for us. And uh, I just pray that uh, you guide me, help me to explain things very well and uh, also um, to make this a blessing uh, in spite of the disagreements that we have, that we are uh, your children and um, we have that in common. And by your spirit, we can we can work things out. There are answers and that you will supply them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's rip into it. So uh, Michael's asked for some responses and uh, he starts with a quote from me which says... Uh, We know Jesus' faithfulness will be revealed in the world because of what was revealed in the land. And Michael went on to say that, uh, I think he was quoting Don Preston, I think. Uh, But he said that, you know, what what happens in the world is not the same as what happens in the land. And that was a good observation. And it's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that uh, the garden, the land and the world are three levels of a single construct. And even though... Those three layers are related. Uh, that they there are differences, and I believe, based on what I've heard and read from James B. Jordan, it's because those three domains correspond to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so, even though there are similarities, there are obvious differences that help us to distinguish between them. Uh, they have different offices, I guess you could say, uh, and yet, as he says. Uh, everything that God does, all of God does everything that God does. So, it you know, the Father might be come to the fore for one particular thing and the Son in another and the Spirit in another, and yet they're all acting together. So we're dealing with something that's multi-layered, and I think that's where this, this uh, um, <clears throat> difference in understanding of preterism comes in. So we're, we're actually pretty close. I mean, I'm... I'm pretty close to the full preterist view, but I believe that the structure of the Bible 
has the answers. And if we're just throwing proof texts at each other and not looking at structure, then we're going to have a mistake because we're not looking at the correct layers, if you know what I mean. You know, you think you're in the kitchen and you're actually in the bathroom and you don't want to do in the kitchen what you would do in the bathroom. So you need to make sure you're doing the right thing. Um, that's probably a terrible analogy, but anyway, hammers at home. Okay, so number one, how would you define a presupposition? How about a paradigm? Uh, well, this presupposition, this threefold pattern, uh, is found in the book of Genesis where God creates the world and then he creates Adam in, it sounds like he's in the land because then he lifts him into the garden like the very first first fruits offering, Adam's like the first Levite because he comes from the land and he's taken up into the sanctuary to receive an inheritance. And of course, the Levites didn't get an earthly inheritance because they were ministering symbolically in the heavenly country. So their inheritance would come later on. There's a lot more to that. It's a lot of fun. But uh, anyhow, so the garden land world pattern is found right throughout the Bible. And uh, you find it in the first five chapters of Genesis, where you, Genesis 1 is about the creation of the world, and that has seven steps. Genesis 2 is about the establishment of the social order, not the physical order, the social order, even though it has a physical component. Uh, and Genesis 1 had a social component because it talks about the creation of man. But as I said, Sometimes the Father comes into the, comes to the fore, sometimes the Son comes to the fore, sometimes the Spirit comes to the fore. So the physical, the social, and the ethical are there in every instance, but one of them comes to the fore in each one. So uh, that's F-O-R-E, that's to the front, okay? So Genesis 1 is the physical world, creation of the physical world. Genesis 2 is the establishment of the social order. And Genesis 3 is the an intended establishment of the ethical order. So uh, you have three domains. And uh, what's interesting is it's chiastic. So Genesis 4, coming out of the garden into the land, we have the social order corrupted. That's Cain and Abel and Lamech and the you know, the corruption of the priesthood and God reestablishes it with the birth of Seth at the end of Genesis 4. And then Genesis 5 is a genealogy from, from memory from Adam to Noah. And that talks about the world again, even though it's not the actual destruction of the world, it's describing uh, this, um, you know, what, what's going to happen, the, the, the eventual outcome of this initial corruption. So, Briefly, we have gar sorry, world, land, garden at the center, land, world. And I believe that is a microcosm for the entire Bible. It starts off with the creation and destruction of the physical world. In Abraham, God creates a microcosmic world to avoid another global flood. Uh, and instead of all of the, the, the sons of Noah inheriting land in the days of uh, Peleg, you have the tribes of Israel inheriting Canaan as a microcosm of the dry land. So uh, I think that's where covenant creationism goes wrong. It conflates the dry land of the world stage of history with the land of Canaan stage of history, which, as I said, they're related. One images the other as a sacrificial substitute. So instead of having a physical flood, 
you have a social flood, which is the Gentiles described as um, a flood and coming up to the neck in the days of uh, Hezekiah, I think it was, up to the neck of Jerusalem. And, you know, the, Israel is, or Judah is just, just able to breathe above the waters before they subside. So it's, everything is social. And that's like Genesis 2, which instead of having the dry land, it has the mountain with the four rivers, which is the, um, you know, ascends out of the, the rest of the, the world. So we're dealing with layers here and each one is an image of the other. So that's where I think this, when we conflate them, that's where we have problems. So, so uh, also the, the problem with uh, just looking at the land and assuming that that is all that God is, was dealing with um, and, it's, and assuming that it's, that's what's going on in Genesis as well, uh, that leads to a kind of Gnosticism where you've actually taken the covenant history out of the real world in a sense not like it obviously happens or happened and is happening in the real world, but, uh, you, you know, if it didn't begin with the, the actual creation, then what you're dealing with is really just ideology. It's just, a, you know, something that kind of happened in history but doesn't actually encompass all of history, and I think that's a big problem. Uh, so especially, and then you have to, you know, redefine everything and uh, say that, um, you know, global all flesh didn't mean all flesh and global flood and, um, you know, wasn't actually the entire world. And, uh, you know, if you're looking at, at this, you, you, what you've done is you've kicked the can. You've said, well, okay, this is just like the call of Abraham and, and all of that sort of stuff. We just kicked the actual creation of mankind down the track somewhere, some place that's not recorded. And that doesn't make any sense to me, but there's, there's a lot of other reasons for that too. But, uh, so, um, anyway, garden, land, world, that's important. And, uh, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of other things I could say about that as well. It actually has to, um, an effect on what you believe about baptism, but that's another story. Okay, um, so I believe that the New Testament is, yep, pretty much preterist, uh, but that there are hints there because, once again, God is always dealing in three layers. And so even within the microcosm of Israel, you have the garden, which is the high priesthood, you have the land, which was the, the Jews, and then you have the world, which was the Roman Empire. And that was, you know, th so those three layers are still contained within the land time of history. And yet it was just a microcosm of the bigger one. So when God removes the model, um, you know, then we're back to the actual, the, the reality. So, um, okay, so that's that's number one, garden, land, world. Um Jesus was condemned in the garden uh, as far as t taken to the high priest's house. Then he was sent off to Herod, the king of the land, and he was condemned there. And then he was condemned in the court of Pilate, which was the microcosmic world at the time of that particular construct. So <clears throat> this is very important to God, and I believe it's because it's it's triune. So, you know, garden, land, world, and then land, garden sometimes i don't know it just it's god works in chiastic patterns and uh we have to keep that in mind and even though we notice that they're related we can't conflate them because we'll end up with uh, with problems so that's why i'm saying structure is crucial you can't just uh throw proof texts around because you mightn't always be uh getting the right the right picture it's layers within layers but it's you know it's not that hard to work out um because everywhere you look you see the same pattern so God is consistent. That uh, does relate to something Michael said about um, a Facebook discussion about fractals. Um, J.L. Vaughan telling me that um, the Bible can't be a fractal because fractals are mathematical. And he's a mathematician, so look, that's fair enough. Um, 
he thinks that fract- all fractals are mathematical, but I believe the Bible is a literary fractal. So even though it doesn't originate from a mathematical formula, it does originate from a formula. And uh, that, that governs the entire literary structure, layer upon layer, from beginning to end, with the same pattern working at multiple levels, like wheels within wheels. And uh, it explains a lot of the weird stuff and a lot of the kind of sharp jumps and sharp edges and whatever else, changes of subject without any apparent reason, because it's working through an architectural pattern. And that pattern is in Genesis 1, and it just flows on from there. Um, Okay, second one. We could be here for a while, but anyway, we'll see how we go. Um, I imagine you are familiar with Don's work in regards to total fulfillment of Bible prophecy in and by AD 70. Um, ever heard of his book, AD 70, A Shadow of the Real End? Um, yes, I've, I do have one of Don Preston's books, but I'm not sure if that's the one. I, and I, I read it quite a long time ago. So, uh, But I'm familiar with full preterism and the, the, the basic... Um, the basic premise, and uh, I agree with a lot of full preterist interpretations of text because they're very logical, especially when you compare one text to another. Okay, um, so he asks. He says the curse of death of the scriptures that entered through Adam would be overcome at the resurrection of one Corinthians fifteen, which correlates to Revelation chapter twenty. It's a fulfillment of Isaiah twenty six six to eight. Uh, in the new heavens and earth of Revelation 21 to 22, there is no more curse or death. The new heavens and earth arrived in AD 70. Therefore, the curse and the death that entered through Adam was overcome in AD 70. Don remarks, this is inescapably true. If not, what is the hermeneutic of distinction? Okay, well... Um, once again, I, I think structure is the key because in 1 Corinthians 15, we have uh, actually three stages. You know, um, Paul talks about Christ being the first fruits, then those who are his at his coming, and then the end. And I think those are three levels garden, land, world. So the, the, the Christ was the first fruits or the head of the sacrifice because the New Testament and Revelation, uh, they follow. The, uh, the sacrificial patterns that you see in Leviticus where the head, the clean head, which was actually the head, heart and lungs, uh, because, and the heart and the lungs, uh, the, the, the heart is like the, the red earth and the lungs are like the spirit. So we have heaven and earth there in the human body and, and the head. So that's the clean parts. Okay. Uh, that was offered first by fire and then the body and the legs, etc., were washed. And then that was offered. And that's what's happening in revelation. You have the ascension of Christ uh, in chapters four and five, and then he opens the scroll and the four horsemen, which it's look, they basically are related to the four gospels that go out into the land. Um, the first one's a white horse, and then there's spiritual warfare through all of those chapters. So it's not about the Jewish war, that comes at the end. This is about the testimony of the apostles from Stephen onwards. After the seventh seal is actually uh, pours out the, the spirit on the day of Pentecost. So then you have this spiritual war between the true Jews and the false Jews. And finally, you have the, uh, the great day of atonement uh, towards the end of Revelation, which is that's where the Jewish war uh, sits and the destruction of, of Jerusalem. And there, once the body has been, you know, the saints have been sealed and sacrificed and offered and they've ascended to heaven and they're up on the crystal sea and then they call down the curses upon um, the old order. Uh, so... Um, 
then we have the final section, which is about the future. So, uh, mostly. Um, anyway, that's probably getting a bit confusing. But um, anyway, so we have Christ as the first fruits and then the first century saints who are martyred and offered as the body of the sacrifice. So head, body. And that pattern's found all the way through the Bible. In fact, there's a fantastic joke in Revelation where it's um, in the trumpets, where the third trumpet is a blazing torch that falls from heaven. And uh, the fifth trumpet is the, the angel opening the bottomless pit and, you know, clouds of smelly sulfur come out, which become locusts and torment the land. And uh, uh, for, was it five months, which I think is the time from, I don't know, it's when locusts appear anyway. Uh, appeared at that time they would that's the the, the locust season but um the joke there is that you these people were trusting in the abrahamic covenant and that was founded with a blazing torch and a smoking fire pot well actually it says a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch but a blazing torch is the head think of a comet blazing torch is the head and then the smoke the trail behind it and so that's a head and a body and that's in that in genesis 15 it represents joshua and and israel so um, head and body, that's just, that's how it goes. But he's saying that your Abrahamic head, this blazing torch is actually Satan falling from heaven. You know, Satan's your father. The devil's your father because he's a murderer from the beginning. And your incense, your fragrant works, instead of fragrant works, you smell like sulfur and you're a bunch of false Nazarites. You know, that's where the hair is women thing comes in and that describes these fake Nazarites, like the ones who took a vow, who said they were going to, not eat until they killed Paul. So, uh, and Paul took a vow too, you know, he cut his hair. So we've got this whole kind of Nazarite, good Nazarites and bad Nazarites going on in Revelation. And that's what all the epistles are about, These against these false teachers. These guys were holy warriors, but they were, you know, I guess like jihadis in a sense. They wanted to destroy the church and they wanted to draw people back to, to Judaism, but those things were about to pass away. So um, lots of fun, lots of fun. Very visual book. I'm a visual thinker. So, you know, you need to read the Bible like it's a movie because it is. Uh, okay, so Jesus is the head, um, the first fruits church as the body. But it says Jesus was the first fruits, and that's where we have God working in fractals. Jesus was the first fruits, and then we have the church. But then together, Jesus and the first fruits church are ahead, and then that's so garden and land. And that land was the first resurrection. And then after Revelation 19, then the gospel goes out into the world. And so, you know, we Jesus himself had a, or still has a physical head and a physical body. And then he is the sacrificial head and the apostolic church was the sacrificial body. Then together, um, what's described in Revelation 20 is the enthronement of that body with Christ as the head. And now we have the gospel going out into the world as the body. So God works in layers and it's because this makes things strong. That's how trees are constructed. Everything, you know, the same pattern is found in the leaves and in the twigs and in the branches and in the trunk and then the entire tree. And look, there it is. It's, you know, the, or the human vascular system, you know, just it, this, this kind of pattern is everywhere. So uh, I still think fractal is the best word for it. Sorry, JL, but uh, you know, yeah. Okay. All right. So Revelation describes two resurrections. And I think that's because, uh, and, and 1 Corinthians 15, as I said, which has garden, land, world. And so 
the first resurrection was the land resurrection. And I do believe that all those Old Testament saints got their inheritance. I believe they went to heaven. That's, they're the ones who are being enthroned in Revelation 20. You know, Abraham got his heavenly country. Abel was avenged. All of these guys that suffered, mentioned in Hebrews, all the believers um, were taken to heaven. They, God, you know, Jesus came and he, and in Acts where it says, you know, he'll return in like manner. He came back and he got them. And that actually refers to the two approaches of the high priest on the Day of Atonement. He would offer the blood of a bull for the head, the, like, for the rulers, because, you know, that's what the bulls represented, the rulers. And then he would offer, then he would have the two goats, and that was the body being divided. And so Revelation follows the same pattern where Christ ascends, even though he's the first fruits lamb, because that's what's a different issue, that's priestly. The bull was kind of a representation of the king, kingdom of the king just as Abel was offering an animal for the sake of his kingly brother, Cain. So um, there's a bull and then there's the goats, which and the goats are divided, and that's where you have the two women at the end of Revelation, the bride and the harlot. So that's the body. Um, okay, now, where was I? Oh, yeah, two resurrections. So then you've got garden, land, and then the second resurrection is, I believe, the end of the world. Okay, now you can try and squish it into the first century, but that doesn't make any sense. Why would you have to? Seriously. Um, you know, garden, land, world. And the, the key here is, once again, the, the architecture begun in Genesis. Um, and uh, the last sequence, Revelation 20 to 24, follows a sevenfold pattern, which replicates Genesis 1. <coughs> Excuse me. So what does a thousand years mean? Well, you, people say it's, you know, it's metaphorical. I believe it is. Everything in Revelation is metaphorical, including the numbers. So 666 comes from Solomon's uh, amassing 666 talents of gold in his first year, directly in contravention of the laws of Moses for Israel's kings, okay? Moses said, don't have lots of guns, don't have lots of gold, and don't have lots of girls, like three Gs. Easy to remember. I think it's Deuteronomy 17. Uh Anyhow, look, that's America today, isn't it? <laughs> really? Uh, or the West in general. Guns, girls, and gold. I mean, you know, that's it. And there's nothing wrong with those things. They're, they're, they're God's, uh, God's gifts to, to, uh, to kings, you know, they're, they're glorious things. But the thing is that kings then, then trust in them. And that all started with Lamech having two wives and hitting somebody. And, you know, look, it's, it's uh, and then having, sorry, someone hitting him and then him having him killed in revenge. Um, and so God calls us to be priestly before we're kingly. And that means, as Solomon did in his early days, you start with submission to God and then he can give you all of those things because he knows you can be trusted with them. But Solomon's heart was, you know, led astray by his uh, pagan wives. And so he ended up, you know, syncretizing um, his faith in Yahweh with the other gods and that things just went downhill from there. So what's this thousand years about? Um, it's a symbol like 666 which obviously is just, you know, Adam, Adam, Adam. Um, it was a thousand years from when Abraham offered Isaac on Mount Moriah to when David purchased the site for the temple. It's the same spot, 1,000 years. And so that's a 1,000 years of worship in tents. And then it was a 1,000 years from when Solomon constructed his temple to when Herod's temple was destroyed. That's a thousand years of temple worship. Now, tent and temple, itinerant tent and established temple, um, are a picture 
um, priesthood and kingdom. So priesthood is the idea that you you know in a sense it's it's the prophet dressed in skins. Um, the skins were given to the priests, Adam and Eve dressed in skins, and uh, you know with no sort of fixed home. And then you have Israel in the land where. Um, the t- when the temple's finally built, it's built with these amazing, beautiful stonework, and uh, the the sound of the chisel was not to be heard there because that's an Adamic thing. You know, the old altars were made of unhewn stones; they had to be raw and natural, and that's what those altars were like. You know, Jacob lifted up stones and um, as signs to God. Abraham planted trees. Abraham planted oak trees. Garden. Jacob. Stones. Land. Joseph. World. There you go. There it is again. Um, so uh, a thousand years of tent worship and a thousand years of temple worship. So it's a sign of an administration, of a period of administration. Um, you obviously know that the tabernacle went through a process of death and resurrection. The tabernacle died, had its head ripped off, the ark was taken away and because uh, the, the, the tabernacle is cruciform, cross-shaped, it's like a human body laid out on the ground um, and uh, so lost his head. There you go, head and body again. And, um, of course, what's hilarious is when the ark is, you know, placed before Dagon, the fish god, and, um, you know, he loses his head, and then he loses his head and his hands. Oh, no, he falls down, that's right, and then he loses his head and his hands. So dismembered. Um, But then there's the the tabernacle of David, which is a resurrected house. And that one is not a silent house like the house of Moses. It's a house of music and singing, and it even has Gentile worshippers. So there's this idea of this Adamic house that dies, and then when he wakes up, then there's this beautiful bridal house. Of course, then that's incorporated into the temple. And uh, so you have this twofold pattern. You have tabernacle and temple, which is Adamic and then kind of Evian. I don't want to say Evian because that's like water, but Adam and Eve. And then you have um, the tabernacle itself dies and rises again as a bridal tabernacle. And then the temple, Solomon's temple, dies, is deconstructed. And then you have a, more, a bridal temple, which is described in Ezekiel, and that's the one that um, uh, is a spiritual description of the time under the, under Persia with Esther. So it's bridal. Uh, that's the idea. That's why the book of Esther starts with a whole lot of sort of tabernacle-type descriptions of the court of, of the emperor. So uh, if there's death and resurrection, head and body and everything, all the way through, same pattern, it's a fractal. So... Uh, that thousand years is a symbolic number, but it basically means this current era. It's an era where we don't have the tents, tent worship, we don't have the temple worship either, but we have uh, a spiritual temple. And so th- that's simply an illusion. But it, you can't squish it into the, the time around AD 70. It just uh, you know, doesn't make sense. So then you have three resurrections. You have Christ in the garden. You have um, the, Old Test- the end of the Old Covenant, in resurrection of, from the land and those saints being taken by God. And I believe in the middle of the last seven years, it's seven years from the completion of the temple to the destruction of the temple. And that, that pattern is amazing. You look at that seven, those seven years, what happens in each of those years just works through the biblical sacrificial pattern. And I believe the saints ascended halfway through that. So I guess that, put, that makes me mid-trib. It's just that the tribulations in the first century. Um, there's a, there's a, uh, that's all described near the end of my book, um, Moses and the Revelation. There's a couple of chapters there on, uh, on that, that era. One is a rundown on the history and another one is the looking at that sevenfold pattern. Because Jerusalem was an ascension offering, which is a whole burnt offering. That's what the word ascension actually means. It means to go up. <coughs> so it's sacrificial. Okay. 
This is going to go on forever, isn't it? <laughs> um, okay, curse of death. We kind of we kind of covered that. Um, so look, those saints did receive their inheritance. They they were resurrected, and um, uh, but there's a third resurrection, which is the second mate, like the second great resurrection, I guess, because it talks about two resurrections there. But um, the one thing about resurrection is, and I know that because you guys don't believe in a final resurrection, uh, um, that you think, well, we just when we die, we ascend and we're with the Lord. Um, but the thing is, a resurrection is a harvest. So it's something where, uh, you know, one seed goes into the ground and falls into the ground and dies, and then then there's a harvest. And that's why when Jesus rose from the dead, other graves were opened because he was buried as one seed, and then some of these, you know, God selected who would be raised from the dead, um, and obviously they would have died again. But, you know, um, uh, they went into Jerusalem to testify, and that's that's the role of the bride. She responds to God's word with testimony. So that was Jesus was like the bridegroom, and then those saints were like a corporate bride who then went into the city to testify. I've got an article about the structure of that passage in Matthew, which is it's a lot of fun once you realize what's going on. It's good. Just the same old pattern, but once you see it, you go, ah, that's what's happening. Okay, it all makes sense now. So... Got to learn these patterns. Um, all right, so I, I believe there is a final resurrection. Garden, land, world, and, you know, the the final event is different to what happened in AD 70. The description of uh, the destruction of um, when once Satan's released, you know, he's, he's bound from gathering the nations now while Jesus gathers the church. So, the, you know, the nations can't get their act together and build another kind of Babel or global global rule. That's what the globalists are trying to do today. And it just keeps falling apart because, you know, Satan's bound from doing it. God's just going to set all of the, these nations, like in the EU and wherever else, against each other again because, you know, but it, once Satan's released, then he will gather them. But then that's obviously just a trap, like getting Pharaoh out of Egypt and so he can be destroyed. So, uh, you know, um, all right. Now, um so yes, death has not been destroyed yet. Um, but once again, it's garden land world. Death was defeated, and uh, you know, you, you defeat the head. I don't know if you've seen Ender's Game, but it starts off with this sequence where they, you know, the hero kind of destroys the mothership, and then all the all the um, the other ships just kind of you know are weak and and can't fight. So you know, that's that's how this works. Um, it's a it's a process, but there is an end. Um, and I think to not believe that the what happened in Genesis was physical death kind of uh, disrespects what death is in a sense. You know, it's it's serious stuff just to say it was spiritual death. And look, it was physical death because God physically killed an animal to make skins for them. So that was the first day of atonement. Uh, so, you know, there are different, there's death and then there's various kinds of me- metaphorical death and, you know, human beings are multi-layered as well. So we've got to get the layers right, but denying the physical is not a solution to that. Uh, okay, the Old Testament prophets never foretold two ends of two ages, two kingdoms, two resurrections, or two last days. Well, you know, they were talking about um, the kingdom of Israel. So, uh, you know, that's it. Um, got, there's a glimpse, even Revelation only has a glimpse of this current age, uh, but it's there, and it's because the book follows the biblical covenant structure. So people say, oh, look, you're a futurist. I say, well, no, I'm not. I'm, look, I'm a, I'm a preterist, but... You know, the biblical covenant structure has five points. Number one, God's a boss. Number two, he puts you in charge. That's So first one is transcendent. Second one's hierarchy. Third one is ethics. This is what he wants you to do. Fourth one is blessings and curses for, you know, if you obey or disobey. And the fifth one is what you get at the end. And that's why 
um, Revelation has the has five basic sections. Number one, the you know Jesus at the start, he's the boss now. He's the Adam who has ascended and now has the full authority of God, just as Joseph had the full authority of Pharaoh. You know, he's he's been qualified and tested, and now he's in charge. So watch out. Um, and he's going to rule in the midst of his enemies, which he's doing now. Uh, so um, that's the first step, transcendence. Hierarchy is the letters to the churches, and um, you know, and then the ascension of Christ is described. So it's talking about uh, you know the people that uh, God has given the mission to. So number one, God's in charge, like your boss. Number two. You, you give, he gives you some responsibility. And so Jesus prepares them for their ministry. And then um, the third section is what God, that's the mission carried out, and that's the spiritual warfare, which is most of the center of the book of Revelation. So that's ethics. Then you have oath sanctions, which is step four. And that's the oath is when you say, yes, God, I'll do what you said. And the sanctions is when he gives you blessings or curses based on whether you actually kept your oath. And we've, we see that in... Um, lots of Old Testament scriptures, you know, it's the same pattern over and over. Uh, but most noticeably at Mount Sinai, when Moses read the law and the people said, we'll do that, we'll do what the law says. And of course, then as soon as he ascended and could not be seen, then they made a golden calf, which is why in Revelation, Jesus ascends and um, the high priests and, and the Herods finish the temple, which is the image of the beast. So same deal. They're like, well, this, where's this Jesus? We haven't seen him. Oh, make for us this golden calf. So, uh, you know, that's, uh, there's a lot of really, really pointy jokes in Revelation if you understand the patterns and what the illusions are. So uh, a lot of this, um, most of this is from James Jordan's lectures, um, and a lot of that stuff is now in Peter Lightheart's two-volume Revelation commentary, which came out last year. It's pretty expensive, um, but, look, I mean, Jordan's lectures will take you 144 hours to listen to, uh, which is, you know, an interesting number, isn't it, considering that was just lucky. Uh, it took him two years to give them. Um, but, you know, I did listen to them all, and, uh, you know, that's a, where a lot of this is coming from. Uh, okay, so the Christian age has also other two last days yes there's the end of the old covenant because the covenant always has a reckoning and that was ad 70 but then there's the end of the world and so you can see the same sevenfold pattern in israel's history from abraham to ad 70 as you can see in the entire history of the world from adam to the final judgment and that's where these layers come in and if you mix them together you're going to have problems so, um, you know, all these things are diagrammed in my books. So you can find them there. And once you see it, you'll go, oh, okay, yep, simple, right. Now I've seen it, I know what's going on. So, um, and look, they could probably be tweaked. I, I've made a few tweaks over the, the last 10 years as I've worked things through, but the basic premise works, and it works like clockwork. Um, so Christian age has no end. Yes, it does, because there's always a reckoning. You know, the AD 70 was the end of the old covenant, not the end of the new covenant, but the new covenant does have an end. There was an overlap between the old and the new, just as there was an overlap between the reign of Saul and the reign of David and, you know, the Herod trying to kill Christ and, and then, uh, you know, the Jews actually killing Christ and then trying to kill the church is the same thing as Saul realizing that, uh, um, you know, a new king has been anointed and he's going to do everything he can to stamp him out. So that's what's going on in those 40 years. Uh, so, yes, there is an end. But, of course, you know, that's not uh, our salvation is not the kingdom of Christ is not endless. But there is a time when he is as the as the faithful as the faithful man who has been sent on this covenant mission. Once that mission is complete, 
then he will hand the kingdom to the father and say, here you go. Okay, this is what you asked for. Um, it'll be kind of, I mean, it won't be like David counting out the foreskins in front of Saul and saying, here's what you asked for and more. That was obviously an ironic take on this, but it's the idea that, you know, I've carried out the mission and, uh, you know, that's what Adam was supposed to do. Here's, here's Eve, the bride that you gave to me as a, in, in a sense, as a possession. And now because of my faithfulness, I present her to you as a spiritual virgin and, um, you know, and now she can be the co-regent with me. And that's exactly what happens in the book of Esther. It's the same story. Once Haman, once the serpent's crushed, she can rule at his side. So there is a biblical feminism, but the empowerment of the woman depends on the faithfulness of the man. You can actually see that in Mad Max Fury Road as well, which is spot on, I tell you. Anyway, the film was edited by his wife. Maybe she had something to do with it. Anyhow, uh, all right. Oh, just a bit of trivia too. The last scene in Fury Road, which um, was filmed in Africa because we had too much rain in Australia and we had wildflowers in the desert for two years. They had to go to Africa. But the last scene where the big truck flips over was actually filmed at the base of the Blue Mountains here. Um, yeah, so not very far away. They had lots of local fire trucks and everything on hand just in case things got nasty. But anyway, what a fun movie. All right, biblical feminism. Um, types are inferior, anticipating something better. And there is nothing better than the work of Christ in the church. Well, I'd agree with that. But once again, what happens in the garden affects what's in the land. What happens in the land affects what's in the world. Now, we don't have a physical land anymore, but we do have the church, which is kind of like a, a, a um, <coughs> decentralization of ancient Israel. And that did happen to some degree in after the exile because... Uh, you know, the, the temple was rebuilt, but you had these synagogues everywhere, which was kind of a precursor to the new covenant. It was like a halfway house. And of course, those synagogues are the places that Paul visited and some of them became churches and some didn't. Uh, and um, so you see that in Revelation where instead of having a single menorah or a burning bush, because that's the Exodus step of the book, um, you have seven lamps and it's this, they're in different places. And so you know, the, the, it's like the body version of Israel where it's spread, it's multiplied. You know, Eve is the multiplier. Adam is the single seed and Eve is the multiplier and she produces the harvest. So a harvest is always bridal. Um, so, yep, the marriage supper is, has, has, has happened and, you know, now they're making children. So, you know, till the end, there is an end. Um, there is something better than the work of Christ in the church, uh, and that is the completion of the work of Christ in the church. You know, a lot of the stuff today is just scaffolding, um, all this stuff going on in the, around between the nations and politics and whatever else, it's just scaffolding. And a lot of times God will actually take the scaffolding and, and use that in the construction. But, you know, the, the, what is better than the work of Christ in the church is the actual last day and the fulfillment and what, you know, like that's just going to be amazing and actually amazing. So... Uh, you know, it's just beyond what we can imagine. I just, you know, that's when you realize all of history was just boot camp. God works in layers. He works in layers. And that's, you know, it's like a child in the womb. It's just like, yeah, things are pretty cool here. But, um, you know, once once the child's born, it's like, oh, there's a whole new world there. So <clears throat> I think that's what that's what awaits us. So there is something better than what he's doing now. Um, no, New Testament writer said the events of their day were typological of greater events to come. Well, they did talk about the uh, the age to come, which refers to this age. Uh, yeah, and and as I said, I do believe that they they did realize that there was a final end. You know, um, 
So, but their, their focus was obviously what was happening in their day. They were still in that land period of, of history. Well, the land period, then it came to the Garden of Christ, then it was working its way out again, and the, the new land is a heavenly land, which is the church in that sense, um, with the saints in heaven and us on earth. Uh, that's the same relationship you have between the bronze altar and the incense altar, the one outside the house, which is the natural altar of, uh, you know, the sons of men and then, and well, their sacrificial substitutes. And then you had the incense altar inside the house, which was the spiritual sons, which is the elders, those who volunteer, voluntarily serve God. I mean, it was Levites originally, but it pictures those who have been qualified and are now given an office and um, speak for God. So the, 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 the incense altar always pictures a prophetic ministry, those who have been qualified by God and now speak for him. Um, you can see the same relationship between Esau, who was outside the house hunting, bronze altar, and Jacob, who was inside the house, and his works were fragrant before God. He was the blameless man, not the quiet man, the blameless man, it says blameless. So, um, you know, the same pictures all the way all the way through. You've got to get that architecture under your belt. Um, all right. So, um, look, you know, death is still with us. That, that's that's obviously something that uh, you either have to redefine or you have to say, look, there is an end when and death will be destroyed. So, um, you know, that's uh, that's that's what's going on there. Um, so, yeah, and, and the structure of Revelation 20, which I, I don't have a whiteboard to show you, but um, that works through the, the sevenfold pattern again. Um, okay. Jesus said the, oh, by the way, AD 70 was the end of the land, and that's why Abel was avenged as well, because Cain and Abel, that was a land thing, brother, brother. That's the son, not father, garden, son, land, spirit, bride, world, okay? So um, AD 70 was the marriage supper of the lamb beginning this world sequence, which is the era of cities, and that's why, you know, all of the, most of the population of the world now lives in cities, that's where this is going. Um, lots of big glass buildings too, lots of crystal Crystal buildings. Uh, okay, Jesus said the events of AD 70 were the greatest that had ever been or that ever would be. How can this foreshadow events that are greater? Well, I th- I think he said the suffering. You've got the reference here, Matthew 24, 21. He said the saints would suffer more than the saints had ever suffered or would suffer again. And Jordan says that uh, basically, you know, the, the nations of the, of that microcosmic world were united against the church. Now, I want you to imagine with me a tabernacle, which is like the cross, okay? I want you to put your left hand out and your right hand out. So put your arms out sideways. And in the left hand, that's the priestly arm, okay? That's where the table of of showbread or face bread literally is. That's priesthood. In your right arm, you have a lampstand, which is the seven stars that Jesus has, okay? Picture the church, but that's kingdom, uh, which is the lamp that is the light to David's feet, the law, etc. In the middle, you have the incense altar. That's where Eve comes from. She's fragrant. She's resurrection. She's the harvest. You know, that's the kind of the final stage. Prophetic ministry. That's why there's prophetesses. There's no priests, but there's prophetesses. There's queens and there's prophetesses, but there's no priests. Okay, so you have priesthood in the left hand, kingdom in the right hand, and prophecy in the middle, which is you know Moses. Um, kingdoms David, and then you have, I guess, Elijah as the center in this particular construct. Um, so, of course, today, in the first century, you had the Jews who would not assimilate. They just wouldn't. And the, the Romans knew that. They just gave up. Um, that was priesthood. And then you had Rome, which was kingdom in the right hand. 
and uh, that's you know the the um, the fire of desire and you know gold guns and girls all that stuff. And then in the center you have uh, the incense altar, which is prophecy. Now, priesthood is about listening to God and submitting to heaven. Kingdom is dominion on earth that God gives you as a gift if you've submitted to Him in heaven. Of course, history from Cain onwards is um, Adam onwards is just about men grabbing kingdom without submission to heaven. And so kingdom always comes first. Cain pushed in and made his kingly offering before Abel could make his priestly offering. And that's, that's the story that goes all the way through the Bible, you know. Satan offered all the kingdoms of the world to Jesus, and he said, no, no, I've got to do the priest thing first. And so then Satan went off and offered it to the Herods, and they said, yeah, sure. Okay, so what do you have at the death of Jesus? You have in the left hand, you have uh, the, the high priest and the Jews priesthood, but nasty priesthood. In the right hand, you have uh, Pilate, the, the, the Gentiles, the kings, right? And then, uh, which Herod was basically behaving like a Gentile king. He was descended from Esau, and Esau behaved like a Gentile. Okay, so the Gentile, the nation's the right hand. And then you had the church, which is the prophetic body in the center, which had true priesthood and true kingdom. And those two combined, listen to God. God gives you the gift of kingdom, and then you speak for God. That's what Adam was supposed to do. Listen to God, act for God. And then speak for God, but he didn't, you know. So uh, what do we have today? In the left hand, what do we have in the left hand today? We have Islam, priesthood, like a sick parody of priesthood. Listen and do not question, even though the Quran is a joke. Um, uh, uh, circumcision for everybody, including girls. Why not? Okay, that's Islam. And then, and it won't assimilate, right? It's a problem for multicultural multiculturalism that I think God you know, God gave us because you know it just secularism just falls apart on, on, when it comes into contact with Islam. Um, so you know God God knows what He's doing. He's wise. In the right hand we have the West, which is the gold guns and girls, and then we have a church in the middle. And just as Herod and Pilate conspired against and became friends over the death of Jesus, then you have in Revelation you have the Jews conspiring with the Romans after AD sixty four. Finishing in the temple, burning of Rome, they conspire together against the church. And that's the great tribulation of the saints, AD 64, 65, and 66. Okay, so three and a half years that pretty much recapitulates the ministry of Jesus. And then I believe the saints were taken um, and Jerusalem, you know, they're the last three and a half years is uh, the, um, the, the actual Jewish war. So the tribulation and the Jewish war aren't the same thing. The tribulation was the offering of the first goat, which was killed and ascended to God in heaven. And then the last three and a half years of hell on earth for Jerusalem um, was the second goat, which was sent to die in the wilderness, which ended up at Masada. Okay, so that's the scapegoat in the wilderness is, um, you know, yeah, I've got an article on that too, if you'd like to read it. It's uh, it's, it's amazing how these patterns just kind of repeat. So, uh, you know, God's word is always vindicated. So I believe that was probably worse than the saints will have ever suffered be, uh, since and will and, and, you know, till the end of the world. There are terrible massacres and terrible, you know, um, persecutions and things. But I, I do believe that that was the worst. That That's what founded this age. That's the foundation of the city. And um, so the suffering. Yeah. So they weren't the greatest events in a sense, but they I think they were most intense in that way. So. Um, you know, there won't be, an, um, and, and as I said, even when Satan is, is uh, um, released at the end, as soon as he comes against the camp of the saints, which is Moses in the wilderness, and the holy city, which is the city of David, um, which is, you know, Adam and Eve, there it is again, um, the, 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 the male and the female 
guises of, of or stages of, of the kingdom, um, fire comes out of heaven. So you've got the bookends. You've got Pentecost in the first century, fire comes out of heaven, and then you've got the end of that history with fire coming out of heaven again. So, um, you know, it's a trap, um, which is, you know, but he'll still fall for it, he, even though he's warned. I, I think he just loses it. But uh, anyway, okay. So... Jesus said AD 70 was when all things that are written must be fulfilled. This means there could not be additional eschatology after AD 70. I think he was referring to the Old Testament. You know, I mean, that's probably seems a bit of a cheap way out of this, but I, you know, um, yeah, it's, he's referring to the judge, the mosaic curses upon Israel. So, and look, it's not just that there was obviously things that happened before the time of Abraham that were fulfilled world things that were fulfilled in in a, in the land arena but um you know i think he's referring to the curses of the law i like in deuteronomy 28 which you know there's there's a list of blessings and then there's a really long list of curses and i think towards the end if not right at the end it says and i will take you back to egypt in ships and that actually happened um under titus with the jewish slaves uh sent to egypt to work in the salt mines i think so, you know, I think that's what he's referring to there. But then, of course, Revelation was written later, and that's where we get a, a vision. Just as, as uh, Moses had, a, you know, was given the instructions for the tabernacle when he was on the mountain, and David was given a vision of the temple. Uh, and, you know, once again, like Moses, he didn't personally construct it. So someone has to have the vision, and then it's in heaven in a sense, and then it's built on the earth. And so John has this vision of uh, the New Jerusalem and um, you know that that's it's something that's currently under construction. It's it's here, but it's still being built by spirit-filled craftsmen like a holy and Bezalel, and that's us. Um, okay, so um, you know everything that had been written at that point was certainly fulfilled. But uh, yes, and when, look when he said that his prediction of Jerusalem being destroyed hadn't actually been fulfilled yet. So. You know, um, yeah, they must be fulfilled. When it says must, it usually means according to the law. Like in Revelation, when it says she must, the, 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 the harlot must be burned with fire. And that means that because in the law of Moses, the daughter of a priest, if the daughter had committed adultery, she would be stoned to death. But unlike other women, then she would also be burned with fire. And that's what, when, it, when you see that must, it usually refers to the law of Moses, I think. So, you know, there's, a, there's another must in Revelation as well somewhere, but I just can't remember what, where it is. But it's the same deal. It just means that we've got to carry out this, uh, this curse because they haven't, uh, they've rejected the atoning blood. Uh, okay, restoration of all things would be consummated at the parousia, which would be the end of the old covenant age. Yes, I agree. I don't see any problem with that. But, you know, that's... Um, the restoration of all, where does that phrase come from? Obviously, it's not the restoration of all things. I, you know, I believe once again, we've, we've got garden, land, world, and the world hasn't been restored because death is still reigning. People are still fighting and killing each other. Um, to say that everything's now fine, to me, is, is just a denial. I mean, we can deny that a bit more easily in the West because we live pretty well and death is hidden from us. But in most of the world, it's just not like that. And look, things are improving, and that's all due to the influence of the gospel. You know, the global poverty is decreasing, um, medical advances. Um, so, you know, that's the, the gospel works like leaven. But, you know, like with bread, there's a time when it's done. Uh, so, um, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure where that restoration of all things verse is or what the context is. So, look, you know, that probably sounds like a bit of a cop-out there, but, um, you know, that would help to look that up. Yeah, I just having looking looking at that passage, um, I think he is referring to the end because Christ is still in heaven. And Jesus has this thing of being hidden and then revealed, you know, like he was lost as a child, well, missing as a child, and then revealed in the temple, like the scrolls found under the reign of Josiah, I think, you know, when they read the law, and it was like, oh my goodness, that's been hidden in there, and now we've found it. So this idea of God hiding himself and then revealing himself, he did that in Eden. He gave Adam the law, and then God hid himself for a time so that, you know, Adam would be, in a sense, unsupervised, like when your boss is not watching your work and you're just expected to do the job. And then God comes back and gives him a Rotten Tomatoes review, in a sense. You don't want a review from God. <laughs> okay, so that's why that was the whole point of the cross. Okay, so we're, we don't get a, a, a star rating um, as far as a condemnation, only for uh, rewards. So, um, and then Jesus was hidden in the waters. I believe he was immersed like Jonah because that's the sign of Jonah. People say he was sprinkled, but sprinkling is about continuing your existing life, like when you water the plants. But, you know, baptism is Jonah is death. Jonah talks about his ordeal inside the fish like a death. So I think, you know, it's extinguishing life. Um, You know, it's the difference between the fire of Pentecost, which is just a little tongue of fire, which is enlivening and it gives you, you know, um, it's like having a fire in your house in a sense. And, um, you know, Holocaust, which holo comes from the, it's the word ascension again, whole burnt offering, uh, ola, which means to go up. So, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to inferno. That's the difference. So Jesus was hidden in the waters and then he came up out of the waters. He was revealed again. Then he was buried in the land. Not just a little bit of sprinkly dirt put on him, but buried in the land with a stone put over the top and sealed. And then he was revealed again, okay? And then he was taken into heaven to be revealed again. And I think he was revealed in heaven in the sense that the vindication was there um, in AD 70. And there were lots of signs, as you guys would know, of what happened. So um, there was a revelation of that of that kind, an uncovering, because Atonement means to cover. It's the day of coverings. And so for the all of the blood from Abel onwards to be atoned for, there had to be for that to be finally covered, there had to be an uncovering as well. And that's because the word redeemer in Hebrew also means avenger. So Jesus comes with a sword, just as you know, Moses redeemed Israel from Egypt and avenged um, the, the blood of the infants upon Pharaoh. So, you know, there's it's always a two-edged sword. But obviously Jesus is still in heaven. We we don't see him now. So it says he's in heaven until the restoration of all things. So I think there's this garden land world pattern. But also quickly, you know, Jesus being hidden in the waters, then hidden in the land, and then hidden in heaven is a reversal of the order of idolatry in Exodus 20 verse 4. Don't make an idol of anything in heaven above or the land beneath or the waters under the land, which is the sea. Um, and so Jesus actually reverses that and then goes back up to heaven. So, um, you know, God works in down and then up again. Um, that's that's the opposite of Satan who, you know, deceived Adam and then got a place in the heavenly court and then was finally thrown down when Christ ascended. So uh, it's it's the exact opposite of that. Okay. Anyway, moving on. Um, 
The Apostle Paul said the goal of all previous ages had come in his generation. Yeah, I, I believe that. I think that's actually true. But this was the preparation for Christ. You know, God could have sent the Messiah, could have been the, the, the first child of Eve, but he didn't. And I think it's just this idea that um, learning takes time. I also have a theory, and I could be wrong, but it sure explains a lot with people who believe in open theology. There's a few little hints in the Old Testament, apparent hints that, you know, God didn't know everything. But I think what happened was when Jesus says he's looking forward to the time at his ascension when he would have the glory that he had with the Father before the creation of the world, not before the incarnation, before the creation of the world. So I think that right from the very creation, Jesus was as the Son, submitting to the Father was only on a needs-to-know basis and that Jesus was actually running things, but I don't think he knew everything. So that when, you know, when he sees things happening on the earth, he's appalled. <laughs> so I think it was a learning experience, not just for mankind, and we're still learning, but for Christ, that as he is administrating as the angel of the Lord, as a servant, the old covenant, um, he's actually learning. But then, of course, the microcosm of that pattern of, of humbling and exaltation is, is in the incarnation, which is in Philippians 2. So I think old covenant history, um, uh, that was, the, you know, the goal was that was the coming of the Christ and the end of um, the end of the law and and the end of the curse of death and and the the point was that death is no longer something to be feared as um, I think Paul says it in Romans they feared death uh, it's now a doorway and of course the corollary of that was Herod who you know the, the Herod Agrippa I think who you know at, spoke with the voice of a god apparently and then. Um, he was cursed with worms, which meant, you know, he was basically like a human Gehenna. <laughs> so that's the wrong door, <laughs> okay? That's that's like a, an opening of the abyss and looking down into the shaft through this man who thought he was God. So, you know, that's the wrong kind of door. And then, you know, Jesus is lifted up on the cross and then he becomes, the veil is torn and he becomes the actual door. So uh, maggots, yeah. Uh, I guess he was like really, like really old manner. That's the Herods. They were just out of their, past their use-by date. Um, okay. So uh, this means they could not... Moving along. The end of 1 Corinthians 15. Yeah, as I've mentioned, I think that it, it's got three steps. It's garden, land, world, and even... It's very brief there, but, you know, I, just, I don't think Christ has given the kingdom to the Father yet. I think he's still in charge because that he was, you know... His rule was really inaugurated in AD 70 because that was when the Herods were taken away and there were no other kings of Israel. So I think um, <clears throat> that's, you know, like David uh, was 30 when he started to rule and then he ruled in Jerusalem for 40 years and then Solomon ruled. And so Christ now is the bridal king, Solomon, uh, from AD 70 onwards. Um, in Philippians, sorry, in Ephesians 1.10, we read that the fullness of time he would gather all things into one body in Christ. That's referring to the division of Jew and Gentile, um, which is chiastic. You know, you've got uh, <clears throat> um, uh, in Cain and Abel, you have the division of priesthood and kingdom into two separate peoples. And then through godless intermarriage, um, which I believe is polygamy. I think that's what was going on. Thanks to Lamech. You know, a one way of getting around the curse upon the womb was to have lots of wives. If you're a king and you want to have an instant dynasty, then you had just have lots of wives. That's the solution. And that's a kingly sin all the way through the Bible. So it's a way of stealing fruit, in a sense, fruit of the womb. Because uh, the land was cursed, 
Obviously, that was upon Cain, who was the farmer. Um, but then the womb was cursed as well. And then after Abraham, it seems that Abraham bore the curse upon the land and the womb because Canaan was barren, famines, etc. And Sarah uh, was barren. And so he was he was carrying those curses for humanity in a, in a concentrated sense. And so the land and the womb theme is all the way through, especially if you look at Ruth, you know, the, the bloodshed that happens at the end of Judges in Ruth, there's a famine in the same place in, in, um, in Bethlehem, which means ironically house of bread. And so they have to go to the Moabites, uh, which is another irony. Um, and, but it's all about the succession. And the end of the book ends with the genealogy of, uh, from Obed to David, which means that, you know, this, the, the promised child or the next step in the, the line of the promised child is coming. So land and womb are, um, are always connected. It's another reason why I'm not a pedo-baptist because we don't have any promise of physical offspring now, you know. Um, otherwise, God, Philip would have given the eunuch his testicles back. You know, he was going to have spiritual children. So uh, those things still apply in a sense, but the new covenant is about the sons of God, not the sons of men. And the sons of God are men who have been qualified and now speak for God. That's what it's about. They're peacemakers because they're mediators and they often do that through their death. So that's, you know, that's what the word, the phrase sons of God means. Um, okay. So yes, one thing, all things gathered together. Um, in Hebrews, uh, when he quotes Jeremiah 31 and he says, um, uh, he would make a new covenant between the house of Israel and Judah. He's, that wasn't fulfilled in the first century. What he's doing there is he's saying, well, look, see how God put Israel to death in the, under Babylon and brought them back to life in one body as Jews all together now. There were no lost tribes, okay? That's just that's not true. Um, those who remained had to prove their, their heredity uh, because they were all holy now because they were resurrected in a sense and now the entire city was called holy the holy city under Nehemiah, that was never the case before. By the way, Ezra and Nehemiah is the Adam-Eve pattern again. Ezra deals with the altar, Adam, and uh, Nehemiah deals with the city walls, which is Eve. So that's why it says Eve was constructed, not created. Um, <clears throat> she's always a picture of the city. Uh, okay, so all things were gathered together into one body. So Hebrews is saying that just as God put Israel and Judah back together, a divided kingdom. He was now putting Jew and Gentile back together. And that's, you've got layers here. You've got the division of Jew and Gentile in Abraham. And then under, after Solomon, you have the division into North and South. Then you have the restoration of North and South put back together. And then you have um, the reunion of Jew and Gentile in Christ. And the end of Judaism, basically in God's economy, Judaism no longer exists. There is no covenant obligation on anybody except uh, faith in Christ. There is no way to God through Judaism and there's no, you know, I, I don't believe there's what happens in Romans 9 to 11 was all fulfilled, as you guys would believe because you're preterists. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that's, that's, that's one good thing that came out of full preterism was a, a full preterist interpretation of Romans 9 to 11 and it makes perfect sense in context. So, um, you know, once the temple was gone, Judaism was gone as well, along with um, animal sacrifice, etc. Okay, not much to go. The eschatological goal, Edenic presence, was to be at the end of the Old Covenant age, not at the end of the Christian age. Hebrews 9, 6 to 11. I'm not sure what the objection is there. Uh, I think 
once again, it's the idea that the high priest had to go first. Uh, he was the only one who could enter the garden section, the sanctuary, the most holy, because the tabernacle had the garden, which was the most holy place, and then the land, which was the holy place, and then the world was the court. So you've got this microcosm there as well. So I'm not exactly sure what the objection is here, but once again, I would say that you know Christ conquered the garden, then the apostolic church conquered the land, and then now the church... Um, the the church made of all the nations is now conquering the world. So, um, yeah, maybe let me know what uh, what you actually meant by that objection or question. The first century church had arrived at Zion, the locus of the eschatological millennium and resurrection. Yep, that's we've come to a better mountain. That's certainly true, and that mountain is now growing to fill the whole earth. Um, it's not going to keep growing. Um, I do have an article called "The Highest of the Mountains," which actually traces the seven major mountains of the Bible and aligns them with the days of creation. So the mountain of Eden, we know it's on a mountain because rivers flow downhill. That's day one. Day two, the water's divided and that's um, Ararat, Noah and the flood. Day three is the the, the land and the first fruits and that's um, Abraham on Mount Moriah with Isaac, the first fruits of the womb. Uh, That's why the Levites were taken in place of the the firstborn in Israel. Um, Day four is the sun, moon, and stars, which corresponds in the feast pattern to the day of Pentecost, and that's Mount Sinai with the flames and the trumpets and smoke and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, terrifying. Um, That's the giving of the law, which is the center of the covenant pattern too, the ethics. Um, So, yeah, the first century church had arrived at Zion, which is the bridal mountain, which is number five, the, the bridal mountain, which is actually the same mountain as Moriah. They match each other in the chiasm. So... Moriah was like the Adamic head offering Isaac, and then Zion was the bridal body. Uh, so they were actually the same place. Um, Zion was originally a different mountain, but then they renamed Moriah uh, Zion. So, yes, we're still at that mountain. Um, you know, it, that spiritual warfare began at the Battle of, well, Armageddon actually means, um, what does it mean, the Mountain of Assembly? Um, that passage in Revelation is actually an allusion to Joshua fighting Amalek. And Joshua was a Jew and Amalek was descended from Esau. So you got Jacob and Esau fighting at the foot of the mountain. And if you look at the structure of the passage, it's just, it's the tabernacle. Because you've got Moses, Aaron and Hur on the top of the mountain. So that's um, uh, Aaron's the priest, Hur is the Judah, Judahite king and Moses is the prophet. So it's the tabernacle, even before the tabernacle was built. Same thing. And then you've got the waters of Rephidim as the laver, and then down below you've got the altar, and that's where the brothers are fighting. You know, if you've got something against your brother. Um, so they were, you know, fighting to see who could be the first out of the womb. And so in Revelation, that's actually talking about the Herods versus the Christians and saying, you know, um, the, 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 the birth pains had started and uh, Israel was convulsing. In fact, the whole land was convulsing and uh, it was just to see which child, which king would be the first out of the womb. And it wasn't man's firstborn, it was God's firstborn, So, um, which is the believer, you know, God's concerned with faith. So the Old Testament is a history of firstborns that blow it. And that's why God says, Israel's my firstborn, not, not Esau, or Amalek, the first of the nations. No, 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 Israel. So, um, and Jesus, of course, is born, you know, like the new Adam. So Adam was disqualified. Jesus is God's firstborn, and he became the firstborn from the dead. Okay, <sighs> where are we? I hope you're still awake. Um, 
The judgment of the living and the dead occurred at AD 70. The kingdoms of the world became the kingdom of God and his Christ. I do believe the nations were judged. I mean, the nations around Israel were judged in the exile under Babylon, which is one step. You know, the Canaanite nations that Israel became infected by were all disempowered and wiped out. Like Babylon came and just ate them all up, moved people around through weaponized immigration, which is what globalists are doing today. Don't ever anyone let ever tell don't you let anyone ever tell you that we everyone should just let be kind to sojourners and that's what's happening today. Yes, we should be kind to people who are who need asylum and help and you know, but what's happening today is weaponized immigration that um, the Assyrians and Babylonians carried out, and that was to disempower people, cut them off from their roots. So what the communists did, it's the same deal. So, um, yeah, but that's what the Babylonians did. And so all of those Canaanite nations, they don't exist after the exile. They're just gone. Every now and then, like, you'll come across, you know, an Edomite or, you know, like in Ezra and some of those books, there's these little people who were descended from them, but their kingdoms have just been wiped out by this social flood. They're just gone. But it's only Israel that rises up like a new land, you know, for after the flood. Um, and uh, that's what's going on. So um, so the nations there were judged. They were judged. And that's what the, the, the prophets actually talk a lot about, the judgment of uh, surrounding nations who had heard the gospel, you know. They should have been like Hiram of Tyre and believed. But because Solomon's kings became bad, um, you know, that Israel became idolatrous and the nations uh, didn't believe. So um, what you have in the first century in Matthew, the context of Matthew 25 is the judgment of the nations of, of that day and possibly of the ones throughout history like Sodom. You know, Jesus said that Sodom um, would, uh, would look good <laughs> in, because they didn't know much. You know, they'd be judged according to knowledge. And yet first century Israel had all of the scriptures and here they, they'd become the worst, just like Israel became worse than the Canaanites before them. And that's always the, the problem with, um, with those who have greater knowledge is we actually can become more evil. I guess that's a bit like um, the dark side of the force, isn't it? You know, if you, if you reject the gifts that God has given you because you're supposed to be priestly with them, then grab them and become a king. Then, you know, that's, that's what happened with the, um, the culture before the flood. You know, the Nephilim, and like the later Philistines, Philistines had a very high culture. They were advanced. They were the ones that Israel had to go to to have their, you know, iron swords made um so you know they were smart people they were descended from the egyptians but you know they had the gifts of kingdom like in genesis 4 the talents seem to go to the kingly ones but uh the priestly guys have to be patient god will bless them down the track um so those nations i think in um from what jesus says in matthew 25 He's actually referring to their treatment of the apostolic church because he says, he mentions a cup of water, which he'd mentioned back in Matthew 10 or 12 or somewhere, but he just said, look, those nations who had actually received his disciples were now being judged because the blessing, the, the, the promise to Abraham that those who blessed him would be blessed and those who cursed him would be cursed was now applied to the new Israel. So that's the blessings and curses. The judgment began at the house of God, at the temple, but the nations around about were also being judged. And that's why um, Rome had the year of the four emperors, you know, the, 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 the unrest that um, was caused by a dispute with the Greeks in, in Jerusalem then ended up with a dispute with the Romans and then everything just kind of went on from there. It just got worse and worse. It just, you know, escalated in layers. 
Um, and you know, God says, I'm going to shake the earth again. And that's, he's actually quoting, um, you know, I think it's Habakkuk or someone and which was fulfilled in that time, but he's just going to shake things. And so everything that's not, everything that's the house of cards is going to fall down like the temple or sorry, when the, the waters rush in and the house is built on sand, it falls down. Um, cause the Herods were not a wise man like Solomon, um, they were foolish. So, um, I think the nations were judged at that time. But, of course, then there's a, there is, a, once again, that's the land judgment. That was the territory that was set up in the book of Daniel where you had the Jews ministering as a priesthood within the Gentile kingdom. It was a, it was a kind of a pre-New Covenant Jew-Gentile construct. As I said, that's what's described in, in, um, in Ezekiel 40 to 48 uh, in spiritual terms, just as the church is described as architecture in Revelation. So there's a move from physical buildings and gradually from then, you know, physical, spiritual, and now to completely spiritual. Um, okay, the millennium, we dealt with the millennium, did not end in AD 70, sorry. Um, that's just silly. Uh, okay, and and look, you know, the guys who say, well, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, it's just a big number. I'm like, well, that doesn't really cut it either. So that's why I think you've got to say, well, what does the thousand years mean in the Bible? Thousand years of tents, thousand years of temple, and now we have a, you know, based on that symbol, we have a thousand years of the church administration, um, which, you know, it's it's not just a tiny little period of time, um, but it's actually a legal mission of the church. And, of course, the church goes through multiple death and resurrection processes like the growth rings in a tree. You know, it just it's expanding through through service and suffering and dying. So the church has a time of humbling and then a time of glory. But you see that with the first century persecutions, um, and then eventually, you know, the, with Constantine, you have a time of government for the church, and then the church becomes corrupt and it's humbled again. And uh, then you have the Reformation, and then the church is glorified. And I'd say we're we're being humbled again now, you know. But that's only because God's, you know putting us back in the wilderness a bit and saying, well, hey, you know, you guys have kind of lived it up and um, I'm going to humble you so that I can give you greater authority. Uh, <clears throat> so it's God works in layers, growth rings. That's how it goes. Uh, we're still going. But, you know, the tree does have an outside, so there is an end. Um, yeah, if the events of AD 70 were typological of a future end of the age, then Christ will divorce and destroy the church and marry another bride under a new covenant. Well, no, because that's the end of the mission. You know, the sin in the garden was the sin against the father, and that was stealing kingdom and not being a priest. That's a sanctuary sin. The sin in the land was brother, brother, and that was priesthood versus kingdom. And, uh, you know, and it was all about the, the fruits of the land and the fruits of the womb. Um uh, and just uh, and then you've got the the world and so Cain built a city which is bridal that's a world thing, but Cain built the city in the land once again grabbing something that God promised but before time like Israel desired kingdom before God's time. So the world is always bridal, which was why the sin in the world was intermarriage. Okay, <coughs> none of this angel angels rubbish. Sorry, it was intermarriage because that theme runs right through the Bible. Um, even between Israel's northern and southern kingdoms where Omri tries to intermarry with the southern kingdom and bring them back together under false gods and God prevents it. Uh, okay, and then Ezra and Nehemiah where they rage against uh, intermarriage with pagan women. It was okay to marry a converted woman and make, then she was an Israelite. That was fine. Joseph did it, Moses did it, Solomon did it, but um, Samson, I think, did it. 
Um, but you know, then uh, yeah, it's when they're when they're going to lead your heart astray because they have not converted. So so what happened in AD seventy? It's it's typological of a future end in the sense that it's a reckoning, but it's a land reckoning, not a world reckoning. Okay, so there's not going to be any divorce of the bride at the end of the world period of history because, um, you know, Christ has married the church. What's going to be destroyed is um, uh, the false, a, a false bride, which is the gathering of the nations. You know, the last feast of Israel's year was in gathering tabernacles or booths. And so, you know, uh, <clears throat> that's what's happening now. But, you know, as I said, Satan's going to keep trying to gather the nations against the church because, you know, as Jesus said, if they're united, nothing um, – uh, well, sorry, that was a Tower of Babel, but Jesus says it as well in, in uh, John 17, that if they're united, nothing can be withheld from them. And so the unity of his spirit, uh, even though, you know, on the surface it looks like we're quite divided, I have a theory that it's a bit like the Avengers, you know, like um, – uh, one denomination might be the Hulk and another one might be Captain America and, you know, so on. And when, they, when they've got nothing to do, they all fight each other. But when they have a common enemy, then they act as one. So, um, you know, I think that's what's going on here. We are one. We are. We just don't always know it. Uh, and, of course, God sends in snakes and, and scorpions and stuff to sort out who the real saints are. That's what he did in Eden. Um, in the first century, you know, they had false teachers in the church and that's what ha- what happens today, you know. Um it uh, sorts out those the true believers from from the um, from the pretenders. Okay, how would you? Only a couple to go, three to go. How would you respond to the charge that your hermeneutic of distinction violates the proper use of types and antitypes? What could be better than what Christ has already done? Um, well, the work is ongoing. You know, I mean, it's a it's like Ehud with his left-handed priestly dagger. Remember the left hand is the priestly, um, sticking it into. Eglon and, um, you know, <clears throat> burst his bowels, so he's enthroned over uncleanness, a bit like King Saul sitting over a pile of Philistine foreskins. Um, so, you know, it's you, you, you deal with the head and then the body and then there's the outcome. You know, it's a head like husband, wife, and then children, offspring. So, you know, there's there's a pattern. So you've just got to look at each stage and you'll see the same pattern wherever you look, but it's, it's kind of like... Uh, how can I put it? Every part of scripture is a meeting of two coordinates. So if you have a sevenfold pattern in the garden, it'd be like, I guess, A, A, B, sorry, A, B, A, 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 B, A, C, A, D, A, E, A, F, A, G. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So there's two coordinates. The A is the garden. And then the second letter is the complete pattern contained within the garden. And then in the land, you'll have BA, BB, BC, BD, BE, BF, BG. And that's the land version. But all of the symbols there will be the same iteration of the pattern, but in the, in the stamped into the land, okay? And then in the world, obviously, CA, CB, etc. So, uh, you know, if you're looking at the architecture, and it, look, this explains a lot of weird stuff in the Bible, especially even in the, especially in the New Testament, and very much so in the Revelation. When you uh, look at the patterns, you just go, that's what he's saying. Oh, I get it now, you know. Uh, sometimes they run the pattern backwards, which is hilarious. Um, uh, you know, the bit in, end of, I think it's towards the end of chapter 11, where it says the ark was opened in heaven, 
and there were thunders and lightnings, whatever. And you think, well, what's the point of that? Now we know where the ark went. God took it because it's the head. Okay, the head ascends, um, and the lampstand in Daniel five was the body. That's what was going on at that period in time. Uh, the Pentecostal body, um, the one that uh, through the, the the in the light from which the emperor could see the writing on the wall. So that's why in Revelation, Jesus is trimming the wicks on the lampstand churches so that the Israel could, the Jews could see the writing on the wall. Same deal, judging Babylon. Uh, all right. Um, yeah, so types and antitypes. Look, you know, if you've got a chair in the dining room and a chair in the office and, um, you know, and, and, and a, a seat in the, in the lavatory, they're, they're all chairs, but they have different purposes. And where they are, where they're situated, uh, or, a chair, or an electric chair, okay, or a chair under a lamp for interrogation, <clears throat> where they are says a lot about what they're for. And so we have to be very uh, sensitive to biblical architecture and where these types appear and how they're fulfilled. But the good thing is that you just have to learn a sing- one single formula and it explains everything. It's just at different layers. So, um, you know, that's it. It all goes back to Genesis 1. So that's why Genesis 2 works through the same sevenfold pattern as Genesis 1, but in social terms. And so when you actually line them up together, you go, oh, okay. That's why the, the law against the second tree uh, in the garden, the tree of kingdom, because those two trees, they're like the two pillars in front of Solomon's temple. Priestly tree, kingly tree. You know, priestly tree is a tree of life, what you need. Kingly tree is a tree of glory, what you want. Priestly tree is, you know, a crummy car that gets you from A to B. A kingly tree is a Lamborghini, all right? So Adam stole the car keys, and that's what you do, all right? He was a, a naughty boy. Um, so, you know, and look, he was a child in a sense, an, an, an ethical child. So Hebrews talks about us through practice, we become wise in discernment, in discerning good from evil. These days, I mean, you know, God allows Satan to throw us curve balls where, uh, especially in the political arena today, we say, oh, look, but this is a good. And you go, well, hang on a minute. I know what's behind this agenda. You know, this is just like a, a, hum- a skin of a human face stretched across a, you know, a Terminator. <laughs> you know, it's just, there's something really bad behind this. That's what Satan says. Has God said, well, look, he's just withholding something good, you know. Um, and so as, you know, I guess as political conservatives, uh, um, I would say that conservatives are more priestly in the sense that we're willing to make sacrifices now for greater benefits later. Progressives just want to spend it all, blow it all, grab it all, whatever now, and damn the consequences in the future. Okay? There's no future. Kill the babies. Who cares what happens to our culture? All right? So they're short-sighted, and that's what Adam is. It's this priest-king pattern all the way through the Bible. Um, So... You know, the types and the antitypes are important, very, very important as far as where they sit in the architecture. So, um, yeah, once you get to the New Testament and you see all these things being, you know, even the architecture of the cross and the, the two thieves on either side, and whew, um, it's pretty amazing. Adam was to be the third tree. He was to be the prophetic tree that could walk. That's why we have two legs, priest, king, priest, king, priest, king, priest, king, and then we speak as a prophet, okay? You probably think I'm crazy now. I don't care. All right. Um that's why the temple had legs, had pillars, and the tabernacle didn't because that just kind of floated around. Um, where are we? There is a future in Revelation. He's quoting me. There is a future in Revelation, and that is the succession at the end. Yes. Okay. So f- the covenant pattern has five points, and they start with T-H-E-O-S. Okay? Theos. So it's easy to remember. Transcendence. God is the boss. Hierarchy. That's who he puts in charge. Manager. Steward. Right? Ethics. What your job is. 
And God gives you the law, and if you obey the law, he, you will see the results. But it's often counterintuitive. Uh, um, o is oath sanctions, which is the blessings and the curses. And the oath bit is where you say, yes, I will, um, I will obey. And the sanctions is when God actually rewards you or curses you, you know, um, for what you've, what you've done. And the final point, the S, is succession, and that's the future. So Revelation, and this is very, very important, okay? This is why, this is the major reason why I'm not a full preterist, because Revelation follows a pattern that goes right back to Genesis, and you can see it all the way through the Bible. When God says someone's going to be cut out of history, okay, he gets to the point where on the Day of Atonement, the Day of Coverings, when the good guys, like, the, like Matthew 25, the good guys are blessed, and the bad guys are cursed, and there's a great chasm between them, okay? Uh, like the two goats. That's what's going on on the Day of Atonement there in the second visit, two goats. So when Christ came back to, he ascended to heaven, then he came back to judge Israel, and he separated the goats, okay? Sheep and goats was the nations, but, um, yeah, the, um, Israel was the two the two women, like Solomon with the, the two prostitutes and, you know, um, bringing in a sword to discern their hearts, and that's what Jesus does all the time. The Word of God you preach it and, you know, I'm talking to a, a a biker who looked pretty scary in the street and I offered him a Bible track years ago and he he just said, thanks, mate, I need that. And I was like, wow, the word of God just exposed his heart. He looked scary. I thought he was going to punch me. I have been punched, but not by him. I just, I was really surprised and I thought he was ready. So, you know, Jesus comes with a sword at, um, towards the end of Revelation and that's the, the oath sanctions bit, you know. He comes with the oath, that's the sword coming out of his mouth. He was under the curse under the sword, in a sense. And now, because he obeyed, he's got the sword coming out of his mouth and he's coming to judge Israel, came to judge Israel uh, with the saints to curse them under the curses of the law. That's what's, that's where the imagery comes from. Um, he's going to cut them in two, like the animals in Genesis 15. Uh, okay, so the succession point, that's Revelation 19, deals with the end of the judgment in the land. And then Revelation 20 to 22 deals with the world. So, in other words, the, th- the saints are enthroned because the Herods have been cut off and now the true kings, like Jesus said, you guys will sit on thrones and judge the, na- the tribes of Israel, which they did, and now they sit as a government in heaven. All of the angels in, in Revelation carry out their final tasks and then they give their seats to the servants. You know, they finish preparing the supper and everything as the servants do. Um, and then they, then the saints come in and sit as the actual guests, and then now they rule. So the seventh step in the pattern is always rest and rule. But that was the end of the pattern of Israel, which is sevenfold. But then we have obviously a bigger seven-point pattern, which ends in the enthronement, the final enthronement of the entire world at the end of history, which will be an even bigger party. So rest and rule. Okay, so God's rest. It works in layers, you know. There was the original, that's why some people conflate these things. They say, oh, well, day seven from creation is still going. I'm like, no, 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 that was actually a week, but God works in layers, okay? So that's why there are real days and metaphorical days. Uh, you speak of a future judgment. Well, that's the final judgment, and this is really cool, okay? Um, there's a sevenfold pattern in Revelation 1 to 5, and step three is the letters to the churches, okay? Just... Think of that. Step three, letters to the churches. And it ends with the ascension of Christ and all the, the, the celebration in heaven. Okay, The big party, that's a sevenfold pattern. Then there is a sevenfold pattern in the entire book. And step three in that, instead of letters to the churches, it is Jesus opening the seven-sealed scroll. 
Okay, that's the step three. When you ascend and you open the word, that's in the lit pattern of the liturgy, that is step three. There is an ascension in praise and then there's the sermon in the center. Okay, so it's liturgical. But then in Revelation 20 to 22, there is a sevenfold pattern again. And you've got Satan as Pharaoh coming out of Egypt in step two. That's the Exodus bit, step two. But step three, Jesus opens the books. So in a sense, Revelation starts with the opening of the scroll, his inheritance scroll, which he's, he's coming to claim the nations, and that means that the Herods have to be wiped out. That's why he's opening the seals, to send the, the, the gospel out into the land. And the first horse, which I presume is Matthew, he brings light and tells people the gospel. And the second horse, maybe Mark, I don't know, it's a fourfold process, it might not be the gospels, but anyway, it is the gospel. The second one brings division, and that's where you've got brother against brother and mother against son, father, whatever Jesus said, but he came to bring a sword and he causes division. Okay. There's fighting and you've got, that's what's going on in the books of in the, the, the epistles as well. There's this rivalry between the natural Jews and the now supernatural Jews and Gentiles. And of course, Satan responds with a Jew Gentile conspiracy to fight the Jew Gentile church. Um, and that results in the destruction of Israel and the, uh, big changes in Rome. Um, Okay, third horse is where the old covenant bread starves away. You see that it's referring to some passages in the Old Testament, including Isaiah, where bread becomes really expensive. It's a kind of famine. Whenever you shed blood, um, innocent blood in Israel, then the land, you know, land and womb, then there's a famine. So if you kill people, then there's a famine. Um, There's a famine in Jerusalem after the killing of um, Stephen and um, the other saints, the persecution, because that was that's part of the curse of the law. um, and then the fourth, the fourth horse is death, and that's where it's now clear who the true saints are and the false ones because the false ones are starving and dying away and they can't persevere. But the saints, no matter what you do to them, they just persevere. That's what's happening in China at the moment. That's scary to totalitarian powers. But the fourth horse is the Levitical sword. He's actually a green horse, not a pale horse. The word is chloros, which means green. And I think that's the stone of Levi. So this is like... The Levites at Mount Sinai coming in to kill off everybody who worshipped the golden calf. And so the fourth horse, the final gospel, John, you notice the New Testament witness begins with John the Baptist and ends with John the Apostle. They're both Johns, they're both Levites, okay? (laughs) So they've got the sword, okay? Um, The final trumpet is John's testimony in Revelation, the final warning. Um, So... Yeah, then the last bit of the book is is the succession step. It does come with warnings to those at the end, again, because it works through a sevenfold pattern. But once you see that pattern, you go, oh, yeah, it makes sense now. It's not all about the future, but a lot of it is. And it's about the period after AD 70 and then the final, the final judgment and the destruction of death. Garden, land, world. Uh, every covenant has a reckoning. Yes, even the new covenant. Yep, that's what we see at the end. Um, and we've discussed the thousand years. How might we push this conversation forward? This is the last question. And if you're still with me, you've done very well. Um, I, I think just looking at the patterns, getting to know the patterns in Scripture. I mean, some people diss this totally and say, look, you're just imagining this stuff. But, um, you know, it's, it's been around for a while, this covenant understanding of things. And God, it's, it's just always it. God turns up and says, hey, I'm God. Number two, you're in charge. Number three, here's what I want you to do. Number four, here's what will happen, depending on what you do. Um, And number five, number five is when you now represent me. You have passed the test. You have been faithful. You have heard my word. 
acted upon it, testified for me in front of the world. You know, you've obeyed God rather than men. And now I'm putting you in charge. That's what happened with Joseph. Uh, That's what was supposed to happen with Adam. It's what happened with Noah. The word covenant is not used in the Bible until Noah, and that's because Adam didn't qualify. So the first actual proper covenant was made with Noah because he heard God, he obeyed, and then he spoke for God, and that's why he pronounces judgment when he wakes up from his from his sleep. He'd been enjoying some some wine, which is a symbol of kingdom. Um, so your tabernacle architecture there again, you know, that's Moses behind the veil. There it is. Anyway, that's another story. Um, all right. So look, I, I don't, I'm not going to become a full preterist simply because there's always step five is always the succession. In other words, God handing the kingdom to a representative, but once again, God then works chiastically. And that's why Christ at the end will hand that kingdom back to God and say, here it is. Here's what you sent me to do. This was my tour of duty, and I've now completed it. Here is the finished product, and now we can party. That's it. So, you know, yeah. Anyway, look, that's a lot of information. You might have more questions. I probably rattled on a bit too much and had a few sidetracks in there. But, um, you know, this stuff is a lot of fun, and I just my, my heart is to share this with young people because I know from my own kids who've mostly grown up now, but, you know, the complexity of the things that they watch and read and the games that they play – uh, amazing. I don't know if any of you guys have ever played a game called Pathfinder, but like my son's into that and it's just so complicated. <laughs> I'm just like, you guys can handle the Bible. You just need to be taught to use the same skills that you use when you watch TV and movies and I don't know, read manga, whatever, and, and play these complicated games, all the facts and the figures and, and the rules that they can remember. But we have to think visually. And the problem with modern academia is they understand, well, they know everything and they understand nothing because they're just, they're not thinking, they're not like reading a book, you know. They can, the Bible speaks in a symbolic language, which is very consistent. And, um, you know, they don't speak that language. They just refuse to because they're too scared they'll get it wrong, I guess. Typology has a bad name. But, well, so what I call this, this idea of structure is systematic typology. And what that means is typology can certainly be abused, and especially if you've got an agenda and you're going to the Bible looking for support, you'll see, aha, there we go. Mary's the mother of God. She's like the Ark of the Covenant because she's carrying the Son, the Word. <coughs> and you think, well, okay, once again, God deals in layers. There's, that's possibly there, but that's, that's not going to back up their, their idolatrous doctrine of Mary. So, you know, the thing is with typology, they're always arranged in sequences, in sentences, and the symbols work in usually in sevens. Sometimes the seventh one's missing because God's making a point. Actually, that's very common. They miss the, the last bit off the end to make a point to say, you're going to be cut out of history. Like Adam, you got to step six, no step seven for you. Um, no rest and rule because you can't be trusted. You're, you're a king like Lamech or Herod. Can't be trusted with the, with, with, um, with the children, you know, with the future. Um, so I think if we if we teach people the basic pattern, and I'm working on some online courses now, well, I'm about to, we'll see how this goes. Uh, but, you know, um, the other thing, if you want to get into it, is uh, a book I've got free online called Reading the Bible in 3D, which is a primer. Um, I wrote a 700-page book first, <clears throat> which it needs a revision because I've learned a bit more and it needs a refining in a lot of areas, but the basic premise is, is fine. Um, that's not actually available now because, you know, I want to fix it up. Um, but then I wrote a book called Bible Matrix, which runs through the, it was a summary of that book. Uh, and it was about, that was 2010, I think. And then, um, 
that was still too much for some people. So I came up with this thing called reading the Bible in 3D. And uh, that just runs you through the basic mentality and the basic patterns. And that's a good place to start. Because once you've got those under your belt, you'll start seeing it everywhere in the Bible. And you'll be reading texts you know really well and go, all of a sudden you'll be you'll see it like, like as a bunch of steps up and down or down and up or whatever else. And you'll go, ah, that's what's going on here. Also, now I get the joke. There's so many jokes. Uh, some of them are pretty nasty, but, um, you know, yeah, some of the things that Jesus says. And you think, okay, I'll just share one quickly with you. I might have done it before, but, you know, when Jesus says, where the corpse is there, the vultures will gather. He's working through the Israel's seven-point festival pattern, the annual calendar in Leviticus 23. The last feast, as I mentioned, is, I think, is called Ingathering. But he says, because you guys have been unfaithful, instead of this big party that you throw for the Gentiles where they all come and worship God, um, you're like a corpse. You've, you're not atoned for. You're unclean. And the, the, the Gentiles will come, but they'll be coming as the unclean birds, like Noah's raven, you know, like the, the birds, the dirty birds that um, come and feast on the corpses. Like <clears throat> um, Goliath said to David, you know, the birds and the beasts will eat your flesh. You won't be buried in the land. You're going to be dis- disintegrated dust like Adam. Um, but he said that they're going to, the Gentiles will come, the Roman eagles will come, but to the feast that you'll be putting on, but you're going to be the meat on the table. And I just think, wow, that's just, you know, I mean, he wept over Jerusalem. So he was, he was, you know, this wasn't a, um, a joke sort of at their expense. It was a warning, but it was the idea that if you aren't faithful with God's blessings and the things that he's given to you, they will become a curse to you. Uh, and that's what happened with with Solomon and his and his sons. So, anyway, enough preaching. Nobody lets me preach because I just rattle on and I say things that they don't understand. Um, so, you know, most of my readers are in America and <laughs> the UK. But uh, so, yeah, as far as the future goes, well, the future is covenant succession. So, I think that's the thing that sort of nails it. But uh, anyway. Thanks for listening, and uh, you know I look forward to any sort of a response. Um, it'll be fun. But um, um, God bless you, Michael, for your ministry. You're a real encouragement to me, and um, yeah, just yeah, keep it up. Okay, so I want to take us back to the beginning of the show. I had said in regards to Mike Bull that he was imaginative intelligent and well presented now many times i've used the word imaginative or we use the phrase you're making it up um, in a derogatory way i want to be clear that i did not mean it in that way when i was speaking about imaginative what i mean to uh, present which i believe at this point you probably already noticed is that mike bull pulls together that prophetic imagination i remember when i was in school one of the texts that they had us read was the prophetic imagination by, I believe it was Walter Brueggemann. And um, it encapsulated the, uh, the idea that the prophets spoke in pictures and spoke in uh, ways that were supposed to convey concepts to the people. I actually had a discussion with somebody about this exact topic the other day, and now it's escaping me what, whom, whom and what I was talking about. Anyway, what did you think of the podcast? I'm sure you enjoyed Mike Bull's presentation, um, but you also noticed many of the problems. I want to bring you also back to the reason for these podcasts. What we had begun going back about two months ago was a journey into the paradigms and presuppositions of the last days. And my goal is to mark out different understandings of the last days. You see, it's, I had seen it this morning. I seen a quote that I wanted to kind of use 
trying to remember. It was, um, you could either be a preterist or a variety of the futurist options that are out there. And that's the problem. That futurism is a divided theory, if you will. And every time you talk to somebody that believes in these future details of the end of the world and the resurrection and the death, and unfortunately, Mike Bull can place emphasis on there will be an end and uh, that there's physical death and that the nations are still experiencing pain, which we're supposed to be healing. That's the point. At the end of the Bible, it doesn't end with a complete story of perfection. Actually, if you were to do the reading in Revelation chapters 21 through 22, um, which I believe is the mode of operandi, if you will, modus operandi, I think that's how it's said, um, that we are in right now, the mode that we are in, in the plan of God, is the church bringing forth the healing of the nations. And I believe that is being done as the church makes known the manifold wisdom of God, as we continue to be an ever-reforming institution as the body of Christ, and we grow in regards to the times, we challenge ourselves in regards to the information that is put before us, essentially walking worthy of 1 Thessalonians 5. Um, verse 21, where it says to prove all things, hold fast to that which is good and abstain from that which is wicked, as well as First Peter 3.15, where it tells us to have a, always have a hope for, um, always have an answer for those who ask of our hope. Now, that what that means is that those who ask are always going to change. As times change, questions change, paradigms and presuppositions and, you know, culture changes. So those things are going to change. And, uh, yeah, I believe we're doing that. So, I disagree with Mike Bull on, on placing emphasis on things that um, need to be searched out and proven. Uh, I believe that Dr. Don K. Preston has gone to great lengths to show that the death that came by way of the law that is being made known through the Bible and manifested the sin that was overcome by Jesus Christ uh, is something that is done in the past. It's not physical death at all. So... Um, I do believe that Mike Bull is guilty of using his paradigms and presuppositions to confuse himself, to lead himself into this fractal, um, you know, a lot of the words he used, fractal, pattern, um, chiasms, and many of these things. Uh, he's using these things to bolster a presupposition of an end of the world, an end of physical death, uh, and ultimately, I guess, the arrival of a restored earth. Um, this is one paradigm. This is one perspective that's out there within the futurist camps. Um, my goal is to kind of hold an accountability forum here where we're going to keep looking at these different views and uh, we're going to notice that there's so many different options that the futurist view really does need to welcome the preterist to the table to offer clarity in regards to different passages in the Bible. And we need to seek an honest hermeneutic and not necessarily cleave and dig our heels in to our perspectives. So... I do want to encourage you, after listening to this podcast, to obtain Dr. Don K. Preston's book, uh, AD 70, Was It the Real End? Um, that may not be the exact title of the book. Let me see if I have it here. Again, I had mentioned it a while back. I do want to encourage you to go ahead and, and get your hands on that book. Here we go. Perfectly, you took some notes, and um, you know we have to get rid of this. AD seventy was a type notion. It's offensive. It's saying that Christ's accomplished work in the first century was a picture of something that needs to be yet accomplished. That that's not the story of Scripture. That's not honest with Scripture, and uh, it would seem that 
the, the two popular views within the partial preterist paradigm, if you will, uh, which I believe is properly noted as partial futurism, um, are the transitional text theory and then the double fulfillment theory. So what Mike Bulls clearly holds to is the double fulfillment theory that AD 70 was a type. The problem with this is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that happened in the first century was not a type. AD 70 is attached to the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, that cannot be a type as well. The outpouring of the Spirit in the book of Acts was not a type that is going to be fulfilled at a yet later date. The Great Tribulation, as mentioned in Matthew chapter 24, verse 41, uh, Mike Bull seemed to kind of confuse that text and talked a lot about suffering, but the text is talking about that there will be no greater tribulation at that time, than that time. Um, this was a warning to the Jews that you know, their temple was going to be destroyed and that a judgment would happen that they would never recover from. And that was in Matthew chapter 24, verse 41. Um, there's, that's not a type that's going to happen at the later. There's not going to be worse times in our future. And, uh, you know, again, this, this, this is problematic. So I'm glad that we had Mike join the show. I'm, I'm hoping that you'll get your hands on Don Preston's resources. I'm hoping Mike Bull may choose to do so as well. And that we will continue the conversation. I love what Mike Bull had said about, you know, how we can continue this conversation is continue to study the patterns. One of the things I might make mention of is studying the patterns in regards to audience relevance and how that would have been perceived by a first century Jew and uh, not necessarily going off the charts with the patterns. Um, I remember this week I had a discussion with somebody about numbers and we were talking about numerology and Hebrew gematria and I had said, well, you know, the problem is you could go off the charts and you could end up with the Bible code. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that book, but you know, when you start to kind of create this smorgasbord of scripture, uh, you can do anything with it, as many have unfortunately done. And I'm not saying that Mike Bull has done that because I believe, you know, this brother is very honest in his faith, honest in his understanding, and bringing out some really good insights in regards to the patterns. But I do believe that some of them are leading in on his presuppositions and paradigm in regards to the end of physical death, as well as a restored planet Earth and a yet future bodily coming of Jesus Christ, which he does believe, you know, these these structures necessitate. However, I don't, I have not come out of this hour and a half convinced. So uh, I do hope that you are edified. I'm going to go ahead and end in prayer. And I just want to let you know that if you'd like to reach out to me, you can reach out to me at Pastor Mike Miano, M-I-A-N-O, at yahoo.com. I'd love to uh, take some questions, some thoughts. You can also find me on Facebook, Michael Miano. You can find me on most social forums, uh, social media forums, Twitter, Instagram, and I'd love to correspond with you, communicate with you. I'm always trying to uh, walk worthy of putting out edifying efforts that I believe are leading to the healing of the nations by way of the church, the body of Christ, making known the manifold wisdom of God that we read about there in Ephesians 3.10. Join me in prayer. Thank you again for tuning into this podcast, and I look forward to bringing on some other guests in weeks to come in regards to uh, what we're doing um, with this paradigms and presuppositions of the last days. I do want to say before I end in prayer that 2019 is already full of so much stuff. I'm working on a debate with a brother here um, on Long Island named Eli Ayala, and he's a member of the New York Apologetics. So I'm working on a debate with him. I'm working on a debate uh, online possibly with a young man that's been doing some videos against full preterism. Um, I... Uh, we're gearing up to do the conference here in May 17th through the 19th, 2019 at the Blue Point Bible Church in Blue Point, New York. Uh, this year's focus is What's Next? A Preterist Conference. And I know one of the speakers, two of the speakers we already have confirmed will be Tom Halford from 
Brady, Texas, as well as uh, Holger Neubauer from Lakeshore, Michigan. And uh, those would be two of our speakers, Holger being the preacher at the Lakeshore Church of Christ, Tom being the uh, director of Gospel Ministerial Association, I believe is the name, GMA, and uh, he'll, they'll both be sharing in regards to what's next in regards to the Preterist movement. So, so much of the stuff happening, so many conferences, Don Preston's conference happening in July. Um, I already noticed they put up the dates for the Berean Bible Church Conference in April, so I'm looking forward to seeing many of you that are tuned in there. And uh, again, I'm just going to make sure I end in prayer, that way we don't go over the two-hour mark. So join me in prayer. Mighty God, we do thank you, Lord. We praise you for being a God so far above our understanding, Lord. We thank you for being with us as we go through this journey of paradigms and presuppositions in regards to the last days, Lord, that you would bring forth clarity in our understanding, that you would bring forth unity in the things that are essential, Lord, and that we would um, continue to bring forth the healing of the nations, make known the manifold wisdom of God, walk and desire a consistency in our understanding of the scriptures, Lord, so that we know that we can worship you and we can lead others to worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you, Lord. We give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.